to tell the truth. This podcast features interviews from women around the world focusing on birth, business, sustainability, health, sex, death and money. I'm your host, Eleanor Bancroft. Um, So today I'm here with Zenith Virago. Zenith is a marriage celebrant, death walker, consultant, educator, facilitator, speaker, author, and respected community member here in Byron Bay. Hello, Zenith. Hey, hello. How are you today? I'm pretty good, thanks. Life's very rich right now. Hmm. I love that. Um, I'd like to ask you, death walker, what, what is a death walker? Well, we're all walking towards our own death, and some of us are doing that as best we can. Others are trying to pretend that that's not happening. But people like me within communities are accompanying others. So we are walking with them in their dying, in their death, and we're walking alongside the bereaved family in that whole journey. But when it's finished, we will drop away and they will keep on walking. That's the easiest explanation. Mm. So you're kind of holding their hands or walking aside those who are coming to spaces of grief? Yeah. Well, we're accompanying people. So I respond. People contact me, and that's how it's always been here. People contact me and say, I'm dying. I'd like to talk to you. I want to find out certain things, I want some advice, I want some guidance, and I come. And sometimes that's the dying person themselves, or sometimes that's the family, or sometimes everybody. We're all sitting around the kitchen table together. And then I'm responding to what their needs are. So I'm sitting on a wealth of experience, a wealth of information, and I'm sharing with them what they need. So it's sort of a bit like being a guide where you know the destination is somewhere, but it's how to get there, how to take the best route, how to miss out, not miss out on what's on offer on the way Mm. and how to uh, then make a ceremony for that moment because sometimes it's not a celebration. Sometimes it's just too sad but um, how to make a ceremony around that. And sometimes a dying person contributes to that. Uh, And then also for those people to live on once that person has died. Mm. And depending on the relationship, depending on the person who's dying, depending on, you know, what they're dying from, then that will all impact that journey. But one of the greatest things is that whatever is happening on the outside with all the trimmings and, you know, the beautiful sheets, the beautiful view, you know, aromatherapy, how many people you've got there, all of that. But really dying is an inside job. So it's all about what's happening on the inside emotionally and spiritually for the person who is dying and the people accompanying them. Mm, what, a, what a beautiful thing and, and 
yeah, what a beautiful gift to have and give to other people. Um, I guess I wonder how you found this path and how you discovered that you wanted to be um, leading this way as a deaf walker. Well, I didn't. <laughs> Death found me uh, and I said yes, which uh, saying yes is very much a part of how I live my life. And I also live in a very deep trust, even when I didn't understand what I was trusting in. So a friend of mine died suddenly in the garden and I went with her husband to view her body in the morgue that day. And as we were walking out, I said to him, you know, we could do this ourselves. We don't need to give her to someone else, to strangers. I'm sure I can work it out. And he said that would be great. They, you know, they had two teenage daughters. She was very loved in the community. They were, you know, Buddhists and spiritual people. And like lots of people here on the North Coast, but lots of people everywhere, is they they don't want to accept the mainstream way of being in total. And so when they die, they don't want to get swept back up into mainstream or they don't particularly don't want to have something that is meaningless and inappropriate and get ripped off for it financially. So people are looking for other options. And now that I'm part of a second wave, people my age, people have been doing that work for a long time. But behind us, there's a third wave. And that third wave is absolutely unstoppable because more and more people are seeing that the significance of honoring death and dying in their lives and not letting mainstream religion and the funeral industry tidy that up for them or dictate to them. They want to find their own way in it and they want to mark that moment in a way that's appropriate and meaningful for them and for the person that they love. Mm. And what kind of relationship do you have with death in your own life? So I, I was, I could say fortunate that when I was 15, my best friend died and he, he had an accident at school. He was taken to the hospital. The hospital didn't do their job properly. They may have been inexperienced. Something could have happened. Anyway, that night he died and it was an incredible shock to be, become aware that young people died. I mean, we all know all these things, but really we don't really get it until it's happening to us. And so with that, I was very fortunate. I, I hadn't grown up with religion. My parents were very, what I call ordinary, but some people might call extraordinary. They just really let me do what was right for me and for my friends. And as I kept expanding into those thoughts, it probably took me two years to really, you know, work out that how random life and death are or not, how when you're a young person and a peer dies, it's an initiation into adulthood, into your own mortality. And so from that point, really, I've lived with the awareness that I could die tomorrow. But when I turned 56, I changed that to saying I could die today 
because tomorrow it might not come. And chances are one day I'm going to be right. Mm. But I'm going to be ready. And my friends will be ready. I will be ready. And that will make that passing easier for me and for them. Yeah, I feel like I have an interesting relationship with death and grief. And sometimes I think my family think I'm quite um, uh, oblique, I guess. I'm um, maybe not as empathetic or compassionate as I could be because I, I just believe that death is, is, is liberation in some form, you know, and I really have thought that for you know, majority of my adult life is that really developing a good relationship with death has allowed me to um, free myself a lot from certain ways of living or being or not speaking to my truth. And um, I guess I wonder, you know, how how is best to develop more compassion around grieving and, and death? Because sometimes I do feel like, oh, God, I'm so robotic around it. <laughs> Well, you have to find the way that's right for you. There is no sort of tick box list of how to behave, what to say, which is a great disappointment for, to a lot of people because often people, people want the easy option. But really, I think you just have to be willing to be there with people. But it's no good being there if you're not being uh, helpful or authentic or whatever. So if you're not the best person to be there, don't be there, but say you're available if they need you. But really, I mean, the big thing is when someone that you really love dies, yeah. then sometimes you get it. So I've, you know, I've spent the last 25 years working with death and dying. I've sat at bedsides, sat at kitchen tables. I've been at ceremony. I've watched people weep into the bodies of their dead children I've, I've seen you know which most people find the most distressing people with stillborn babies people with grown adult children who have died from ectopic pregnancy of course people who kill themselves and their parents are bereft or their partners are bereft but really and i've i i don't take on their pain and suffering but I, I can be there in it and I can offer what, what support or guidance I have to give in that moment. But I'm not merging with people when it's not mine. It's not my pain or suffering. But recently a friend of mine died. And so in that moment, I, it broke me open in a way that I have never felt. That I, and I was very grateful that I had all the experience that I have to support and sustain me in her loss. But the degree of all the different emotions. So I generally don't use the word grief because it's a sort of blanket term. And it, it, it you know, it's a bit like saying food when there's so many different varieties, there's so many different parts of of the process that make up food. So what I was looking, what I'm able to do with people is I can sit with their pain and suffering. I can be in a sadness. I can see their shock. I can see their trauma, but I don't need to merge with them. 
but I'm offering the best guidance I can because I am very familiar with those experiences, those emotions, those feelings, those thoughts. And so when I come, I bring all the people that I've worked with, all the dying people, all their families, I bring that whole body of experience to whatever I'm doing. And so I, I am lucky like that because I can pull on any of those experiences to support the one that I find myself in. But I think, you know, if, I don't know, it's a blessing and a curse not to be touched by it. But I have no doubt that someday someone that you love very much will die. And if that is sudden, then there will be a range of emotions that will rock you to your core. And, and you know, that will be a blessing or a curse. And life is full of rich things. Yeah, mm, yeah I often, um, you, you do death walker trainings and um, I wanted to do it this year, but I didn't align. But, you know, uh, often what comes up for me a lot is my relationship with my mother, which is very strong. And um, when I look, when, when we met and I looked into your trainings, you know, a big instigator for me to wanting to do that or become more familiar with how to deal with death and grief was actually with her in mind, you know, um, mm. and just on a linear landscape because she's older than me, you know, there's that assumption that she'll go first, but you're right. There's no, you know, everybody can, can go today and it's good to recognize that. But I definitely think that i yeah, that will be the, the big one for me to be able to dive deep and, and tackle a lot mm. of stuff, you know. But I, I also mm. feel rich with my spiritual connection with my mother as well and like a deep knowing and understanding that um, like we've played together many times on this planet and, and, and that deep knowing that I'll play with her again, even if it's not in our physical forms right here and now. Mm. Mm. I am. But, but I think... I think one, I just want to go back to what you said that, you know, a lot of people in their trying to be the best support they can for others, they're merging with people and women in particular do that. They take on someone else's suffering. But if I took on everybody's suffering, I wouldn't still be standing. I would not be healthy and vibrant and alive and ready to give again and again and again. So I think there's a difference between being dispassionate and being autonomous and just not merging. So I can be in those situations, but I'm not, from your language, I'm not overly um, engaged in it with them because I see that it's their right to feel that pain mm. because that is their love transformed. Mm. But it's great when you're in a choppy sea to have you know, a rope, someone throw you a rope or a life raft to sort of take respite care in when you're in an intense situation. And that's sort of the role that I'm playing. But I'm not drowning with them in their emotional response. Hmm. I love that. Um, I know that you spoke uh, at the beginning about um, religious beliefs and I just want to talk a little bit to that and also spiritual beliefs when it comes to dealing with death and, um, you know, is there any 
particular lineages of religion or spirituality in which you intertwine into death walking? Yeah, well, because I came with no religion from my childhood and then I was a young adult, I, I just... I just tried to get it as not as a scientific thing, but as an unknown, as the mystery that you never know what life's got in store for you. You never know when death is coming. And my work, because after I buried my friend, then other people said, will you come and do this for us? And it, it gradually has had a life of its own. And so a lot of, that's a great teaching to, to learn on the job about something so intense but at the very same time that she died I had just walked into started to go to Buddhist teaching some with her my friend Sylvia and with others and then shortly after Sylvia died I found myself in the next couple of months in India up a mountain with the Dalai Lama and I have to say I was never the same again it sort of blew my cellular body on the inside apart and when I came back in I I was I was the same but sort of different like any experience makes you the same but sort of different and Buddhism really supported me it's an incredible philosophy it does death really well and it offers great guidance and support and while I was busy supporting everybody else Buddhism supported me but then probably about maybe 12 years ago I started to fall deeper and deeper in love with the mystery and I'm, I feel like I'm tumbling into that mystery every day with every sort of interaction everything that happens you know with every moment that I'm alive and the ocean is really great for that, but nature is really great. Community is really great. And so I will probably, if I had to describe myself, I would probably say I was a Sufi because I'm probably I've become ecstatic in that work, not in a you know hilarious sort of overindulged way, but just in that pure bliss, ecstasy state that life can offer you, sex can offer you, and death can offer you. Drugs can also offer you that. Um, but it's always available. And to get it in its purest form, just from being alive, I'm very grateful for that. But death has been a great teacher. Mm. Death is such a good teacher in your life, and I'm sure everybody else would, would feel the same if we had such a... Um, I guess a more open conversation around death. And I guess my question mm. to you is, but why do you think in, in this society, and I talk in the, the mainstream Australian society, why do you think death is, is so unspoken and such a taboo? Well, I, I really can't support the use of the word taboo because it, it sort of isn't. And so even by saying, by putting it, I would discourage you, from using it and even inviting that concept into a conversation because you might as well say breathing is taboo because it's something that we are all going to do and some of us will make an action and make that happen sooner or later. Some of us will not want to die but it will be coming for us 
and others will see it, see it as a sad but timely thing. So, you know, once you, some people are just unskilled in how to start a conversation or frightened of their emotional response because what we do know on a rational, deep level is that we are going to die and everyone that we love or hate are going to die. And so if, it's, I think it's very possible to live with that reality comfortably because that's what I'm doing, so I know it's possible. But when it occurs, then it will have, in the equation of who that person is, how they die, and who they are to me will give me a response. So it will be different each time. But, you know, a lot of people are comfortable with it or are aware, but they just don't want to discuss it, especially old people, because death is a bit like sex. You know, it's an intimate experience. And if people aren't used to expressing their emotions all over the place, discussing their inner world and how they're feeling, uh, and if they're not in an environment where that's supported or encouraged, then they will just stay quiet. But, you know, often you, you can meet a complete stranger somewhere, like at the airport or on a plane or on a bus, and you can have this incredible conversation with them about how they feel about death and dying because there's no investment for them with you because you're a complete stranger. So I think people are much more aware. There's a middle bank of people who need only need an opening to discuss it but are not in supportive, fertile ground. And then there are some people who put their trust in God and and the concepts that go with that belief and they are proceeding accordingly and either you know working towards a heaven or terrified that they're going to hell and really i can't offer any support in those beliefs because you know <laughs> they're, they're hard to believe that's you know i, I just can't get there with that so I'm not much help on that question. I'm sorry. No, I think you answered that beautifully. Um, I want to talk to ceremony a little bit, and you briefly spoke to it. But but why is ceremony important to you personally? I think what I've learned from, again, from that 25 years in that role and with those people and with myself is that ceremony is a time of of touching magic it's a transitional transformative experience in any form so i've you know i've probably married nearly three three thousand couples and so i've stood at a lot of weddings i've experienced the depth of that and the dynamic layers but also the subtle layers of what's at play and around death ceremony you're usually coming and, and you're often coming with the body but sometimes not now but really by the end of that ceremony you are going to let go of the physical remains of the person that you care for and so it's it's tra trying to 
encourage people to transform their feelings and attachment to the person and then the attachment to their, their dead body, their physical remains, into being able to let that go freely because they have to let it go. So to try and encourage them to wish them well, to send that body on its journey and to then be able to step into their own lives without that person physically in it. But having transformed their love for that person into a place within them that they can carry always and that they can tap into when they feel that that person is missing. And it involves memories, it involves you know connection, it involves their relationship to that person. And you know it's particularly important when someone cures themselves that that ceremony addresses all all the aspects that it can, but also with when people kill themselves in particular, that it's an opportunity to disperse truth and dispel rumor. So often, and try to assist people to understand what may or may not have led to that person killing themselves. And if there's a note, then it can be really great to share that note at that ceremony so that everyone who attends, every, and they're attending because they care for that person, has the truth to work with. Even if that's difficult, it is always better to be working with the truth than rumour or uh, fabrication or lies. So ceremony offers that. It, I made a list and I'm up to 38 things that the ceremony purposes that the ceremony can serve. And most of them are quite profound. So for people who say, I don't want to have a ceremony or I don't want any fuss, you know, they're really doing the people that they care for who they're leaving behind a disservice. And there are many reasons why people say things like that. But you don't need to have a ceremony in a standard form. It's better if it's if it's guided by someone who knows what that needs that journey needs to be and how to t- pick people up, carry them along, and let them go at the end with all the things that need to be addressed addressed, so that when people look back at that time, they will say. Oh gosh, it was such a so terrible when so and so died. But the next thing will be overridden by, but wow, that was just such a beautiful ceremony for them. Mm. And that ceremony offers healing as people step into their bereavement. Mm, so beautiful. And I feel like so much of our life is um, well, I speak to my life really is is mm-hmm. is not conducted in ceremony but as i get older i really i really want to pay homage to that space a lot more you know specifically because of my lineage but also because i see how cathartic ceremony can be and not just um you know funeral or or ceremony around death but also commitment or marriage ceremonies which for a really long time i was quite um again marriage you know for my own feminist reasons, but, you know, really thinking that it was quite patriarchal and um, thinking, you know, almost the enslavement of women in that space. But I recently have come around to 
to really wanting to have a love ceremony and what that looks like, you know, that I think it's important that people realize that they can design their own celebrations and ceremonies, that we don't need to mm. follow the, you know, the main social constructs of the way that people, you know, get married or the way that they do have funerals and, and that really we can regain our sovereignty a lot by by making those choices and really figuring out what, what is our truth in that space, you know? Yeah, and I think so. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big feminist myself, of course, but I think that, you know, the patriarchal overlay on marriage is a relatively recent thing in, in the big scheme of time and humanity. So, you know, thousands of years ago, people made a choice who, because it's a primal condition to fall in love or to want to breed and to make a choice of who that person is or not make a choice because sometimes that person arrives in your life and just knocks you off your feet and the alchemy is is clearly something that you cannot ignore or you can depending on or you have to sometimes depending on the circumstances but I think years ago in those cultures where people gave themselves to each other and journeyed together for a while, some of them weren't for life. They were for a period of time until that had served its purpose or it, it was finished or it was complete. And that love sometimes transforms into something from romantic love to a friendship love. And you stay friends and you go off to, to, to explore romance. Or, and really the difference between friendship and romance is sex. And, you know, some people need to explore that a lot and some people don't. And ceremony doesn't have to be binding for life. Unfortunately, the wording of marriage ceremonies uh, the standard legal line that you have to say it says it's for life but it's a ludicrous situation because people fantastically can get divorced um, and and separate and not be in something that doesn't serve either of them but that the law really needs to get up to speed with culture and it, that line should be changed to, you know, for as long as people want to or something like that, rather than voluntarily entered into for life. So I think if you can drop away those patriarchal concepts, and, which is what I had to do, but because I stood on that coalface with so many people and I really got to understand its core, subtle, pure, magical uh, purpose rather than it's you know enslavement of women control of women seizure of property uh, that the law has has taken control of that but in its purest form you know it's a beautiful thing and you don't need to have a big hoo-ha you can just have a very quiet ceremony just between two people or or however many you want there mm. Yeah, I have. I'm yet to tell you this yet, but um, you are aware of my my best friend Brendan, who is also gay, and um, we recently decided a few days back that we we're going to actually have a love ceremony and a 
commitment ceremony to each other, even though we're both gay and we're not um, intimate, but we really want to raise a family together and tackling that. But, you know, you were the first person we thought of when I thought, who are we going to get to to marry us or, you know, marriage is a strong word, but, you know, to, to create that ceremony for us. And, yeah, you were the first person we thought of. So I'm excited for that to That's unfold, <laughs> however it does. Well, yeah, I, I would probably encourage you to think of it as something like a binding ceremony where you're binding a part of your life and your humanity to each other, but not mm. all of it. Definitely not all of it. We've got to save some for the lovers in our life. <laughs> yeah, and for, and for yourselves. Yeah. So you, you're a celebrant as well, which is, um, I feel like, a, a beautiful compliment to death walking in some way, you know, because for me personally, I feel like any kind of embarking in a relationship with somebody, there is a, there is a sense of a death of self or um, the solo self really embarking on like that two minds becoming one mind, one heart. Um, why did you decide to become a celebrant? I became a celebrant because I love feeling in forms. I've got this quirky part of my personality that just really loves exams, loves filling in forms. It's been very helpful, but I've only met one other person who has the same quirk. Anyway... I, one day I was in the post office and I found a form that was the application form to become a marriage celebrant. And I filled it in and sent it off. And I was already working in law. I was already a JP because that was a useful, um, and you know, JP, the JP system is a wonderful system in Australia uh, as part of c community trust because it's all based on trust um, and to allow people to f function well. And I sent that form off and it, most of my friends found it hilarious that I had applied to become a marriage celebrant because, you know, as I say, I'm a very strong feminist. I have much of the views that you've just voiced earlier. And anyway, but what I also have is this deep trust. And so, I, I mean... I just thought, okay, I'm just going to fill that in and throw it up to the universe and see what happens. And I, at that point, I became one of the youngest celebrants uh, because most of them were much older, you know, the age I am now in my 60s or in their 50s, and they were very authoritarian, very straight. But I also thought, well, where do all the bent people go? you know, when they want to get married, where do the hippies go when they want to get married? And they really need someone who's part of their lifestyle rather than to, to call in someone like the registrar from the local court or some, you know, you know, conservative voter when it's not in keeping with their love or their life or their community. And so very quickly I became the busiest, most popular celebrant in Byron even though I was clearly an out dyke and uh, I was you know quite unusual but it worked for people because I stood in an integrity I brought a sense of honor to that and 
a respect for their lifestyles and their choices. And together, we would create something that was absolutely appropriate for them because it's no good standing there making a promise if you don't feel that promise. It's no good swearing something if you know it doesn't fit in with how you live your life. And so it was a, it was a really great move, but it certainly wasn't a considered move. It was a random action in the post office. And you mentioned that you are a, um, a dyke, and I love the way you use that word and that terminology and, and how empowered you are by it. Or I don't know if empowered is some, a disempowering word now, but yeah, I just... <laughs> I don't you know. think empowered is a disempowering word. <laughs> well, sometimes people suggest that if you say, you know, you're empowering yourself, is that that person came with no power at all? Was there, you know, the, the debates around language, Dennis, it's... Um, continual in my life yeah i'd say that's a disempowering debate yeah Yeah. definitely (laughs) because every everybody has an inherent capacity everybody has an inherent power but sometimes they need to wake it up or it's like we all have the capacity to learn to read well most people have the capacity to learn to read and write but we some we need assistance with that we need a book we need a teacher we need some way to to encourage that to come to its full potential so i certainly wouldn't be seeing people as powerless i think you're just assisting them to step that up or to wake it up and then ramp it up to get more power yeah call me old-fashioned if you like but um (laughs) That's what I, that's what my life teaches me. Uh, and for someone who deals with, you know, hundreds of, if not thousands of people every year in a range of different situations. Um, yeah, I think, you know, assisting people to, to an empowered place is, is a great thing to, to do. I agree. Um, so the fact that you're a part of the LGBTIQ, <laughs> Um, community and also a celebrant like um, how did you see the change in clientele in this area after marriage became legal in Australia or was there Uh, well I had already stepped back from doing so many weddings because I at one stage I was doing my average was sort of 130 weddings in nine months because I always traveled for three and so a few years ago, I decided, and I saw what was coming in the wedding market, that there was going to be a flood of celebrants and there's a more stylish approach, let's say, was coming in. And I decided that I would go out on top and I would spend my time teaching and working more or less totally with death. So even though I kept my... Uh, license to marry people I don't do anywhere near so many but what I do know is a lot of people who are part of our community want another member of our community uh, to marry them rather than a straight person and and so I am available for that I'm you know I'm marrying people frequently Uh, but I don't think there was a bigger flood as a lot of the straight celebrants were hoping for 
because they were hoping for some of that magic that we carry as a community to come their way in weddings. But I think the, there was an initial flush of people who'd been waiting a long time in relationship. And then it just settled down into a regular pace where once it's an option, then you can choose whether you want it or not. But it's certainly, it's a bit like other choices that people have to make, that if, it's, if you're denied that as a human right, then you have to put a lot of energy into fighting for it, for equality and for respect. But once you have it, then it's a choice you can make just like everyone else. Mm. Yeah, and just being able to have that choice as, as every human d- should, and, you know, the choice to love and, and really uh, uh, that strong understanding that we, the heart is so rational, you know, and, and we yeah. actually don't choose who we fall in love with. If we could choose, I'm sure things would be a lot less complicated. <laughs> <laughs> well, but also choosing to marry for what there are a range of reasons people choose to marry and sometimes that's out of fear because Mm. they're afraid they're going to lose that person it's not always you know love is not always the um the propelling force and so you know everybody can decide whether they want to make that commitment and have it recognized in law but law you know is there for a purpose and most of the time you know it's it's useful to be on the right side of that but obviously it needs to change as culture changes and we're watching that with the pure testing debate you know i mean blind freddie can see that that needs to happen to save lives and it's not going to encourage people to take more drugs people are taking you know drugs just like they've always done and those people that are trying to make those rules are so completely detached from what's happening at, at, a, at a regular level for families and for young people. Mm. I have a question around marriage and if you've ever mm-hmm. had anybody who has come to you and asked if you would marry them to themselves. No, I've never had that. And if so, would you do that? Can you do that? Is that within your... Your legislation, your well, right? No, you because marriage is the union of two people voluntarily entered into. So it's always been that. And then when John Howard came in, he added, he changed that to man and woman. Mm. And that's what the whole fight was about. But the court, so that is its fundamental premise, that it is the union of two people. So maybe Great. if you were schizophrenic you, or you were bipolar. <laughs> well, you I'm a Gemini. Do Does that work? I'm a Gemini. So there's two of Well, me. good luck with that. But so the answer, <laughs> you know, the legal answer is no. But I probably wouldn't engage in that either, even from a non-legal perspective, because I would probably encourage that person to do that ceremony themselves hmm. in a way that was appropriate for them. Good or advice. with their friends. Yeah. I recently had a few women tell me that they were going to do this self-marriaging and have a um, you know, full-length mirror there and, and just make a little ceremony, which is why I asked that if it was actually something that we could possibly do under the legislation of the law, but you've answered that for me. 
Um, yeah, and I think you can't do it under the legislation, but sometimes there are a range of reasons, and let's just say one of those might be that someone had overgiven to someone else and they wanted to reclaim that and make that commitment for themselves, or they may have suffered in some way and want to come back into a wholeness. And I think to honour anything by ceremony is a very powerful way because you're messing with magic. You're calling in the divine to, to support you in something. So in its fundamental place, I think people can use ceremony for whatever is, you know, is true for them. And hopefully that's a good purpose. But I think, you know, there are elements of ceremony that you need to entwine in something to 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 sort of you know to make it catch um, you know because we all know when we've been to something where it's it's caught us in a way that we didn't expect or we feel transformed by that experience. Well, and ultimately, it's it's coming down to love, right? Love in your heart. Uh, yes. Um, but but it, it may not be about love. It may be about health, which means loving yourself. But for some people, that that concept can be very challenging. I, I, I don't get that myself, but I know that a lot of people find it very challenging to love themselves. And, you know, so really whatever it takes, whatever gets you there, as long as it's not damaging to anybody else or detrimental, then you know it's a way of communing with the divine and it's 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 calling in help to achieve something that you want to achieve and marriage you know you're calling in the law to help you achieve a longer more committed deeper relationship yeah and strong self-discipline and dedication i'm sure you need also (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to be marriage well you can set the terms for it yeah, yeah. so some people are married to each other but they may be polygamous or polyamorous or spending time with other people so you, you as long as two people are agreeable to that you can set your own terms but in that commitment is enshrined either by desire if you don't do it legally or by law if you choose to do it legally. So you can hmm. set your own terms. Um, just going a little off, off death and marriage, but still in the theme of love, I guess, um, 14th of February, known as Valentine's Day. Here in Byron, you've started a new day called V-Day. Um, would you talk a little to the... To, to that space and how that project came about and, um, you know, I guess why. Sure. Well, I can't take credit for the V-Day logo because it's part of Eve Ensler, who is the woman uh, who wrote the Vagina Monologues and is, is an incredible feminist activist for humanity. She created a day and a movement some years ago which was she called V-Day and she said it on February the 14th and she put out a call for 1 million people to rise and dance in the streets that day 
to protest and to start a campaign or to add another campaign to all those in existence about violence towards women and children. And I saw that, I read it somewhere on the web, and I thought, oh, well, someone will do something in Byron. And then as the date got closer and there was none of the women's groups or the uh, health departments or community centres were doing anything. So I just thought, oh, well, I'll just stand up and do that and make that happen. So I put together something that I thought would work, which was the, she was proposing a dance and you could learn it on online, but very quickly she realised that one million was going to be replaced by one billion. Mm. And so she changed it to one billion rising. And I put it out there and I have a, anything I do, I have a bottom line of one. I only need one person to come to make it a good day. I only need to make a difference for one person and it's a good day. That's You're very rarely disappointed and you're often completely blown out if you get six people, for example. So I put it out there and on that morning, probably about 80 people came, mostly women, but some men with partners came and children. And we dressed in red. We were on the beach at sunrise. We did the dance. Uh, my friend Sean Lathan came with his sound equipment as a voluntarily, and he has done that every year. I'm very grateful to him for that. And we played the music, we did the dance, and then spontaneously, which I always knew would happen, is that people uh, took their clothes off and ran into the ocean. Mm. And some people kept their clothes on, but a lot of people were just, you know, in that empowered feeling that they had from dancing together and being in a collective of noisy, rabble-rousing women were in the water. And some of the shots from that first day were so incredible. And Sean carried on playing the music and people came out then and were dancing on Main Beach. And it was an incredible morning. And we did, we've done that every year since then. The numbers have grown. But we've stuck to the same dance. And some people feel that is the best day of their year. And alongside that, other people put on uh, productions of the vagina monologues. But after the second um, offering of that, I really thought, you know, this is crazy. These stories are 20 years old. They're fantastic, but they're dated and they're American. And they're a compilation of stories that events are collected and they're made into powerful monologues. And they have different aspects of different stories. And I thought, you know, we've got enough great women here. Everyone's got a vagina. We can tell our own stories. So I decided to put on an event called the Vagina Conversations, which made it rather than a delivery, was a conversation with the audience, with the other people that came. And, and I've done that now for the last four years, I think. And it's a fundraiser for the, uh, for the Mullum Women's Escape Fund. And it's supported by a few small things like the community centre give us a free night. But there's usually about 10 women. They're talking about whatever aspect of their vaginal life they like. 
So some people are midwives and they're talking on a professional level. Others are sex therapists. Uh, others are mothers. Others are uh, you know young women who are exploring uh, sex for the first time. Others are you know it's endless the the options of things that you can talk about with a vagina, and it, it it's. It's a sellout. We do it for two nights now. It's a sellout, and it's you know it's a really great event. I'm trying not to swear. It's a really great event. You can swear. I don't mind. Yeah. Um, I'm really excited for it next year, and um, it happens on the 14th and 15th in Byron Bay, and the vagina conversations take place at the Byron Bay Community Centre. And the V-Day um, celebration, would you call it a celebration? Fundraiser awareness um, happens on Main Beach in Byron. Yeah, so, so that's a six, it's a 6.30 a.m. gather for a 7 o'clock dance. So people can still take their kids to school. They can still get to their jobs. And... Uh, I did it. I did it early in the morning because it's always a powerful time, early in the morning. But it also allows people who, you know, have to be at work, have to get their kids to school, to do all that. And sometimes, you know, people bring their bring their children, and the first year the kids are like, "Oh, I'm not doing that," and then they watch what happens, and then the next year they're right up for it. So it's a really evolving, revolutionary experience and the biggest thing for me is it's about women finding their voice or exercising their voice and in both on the beach in the morning and at the at the event in the evening mm. you are a feminist and you believe um, you know in, in that space as I do that women deserve you know, equality um, or egalitarianism, however you'd like to see it. But well, yeah, with because we, you know, we're all equal, mm. and what we've just got is a system that disrespects, disenfranchises, and mistreats women, and that is enshrined in the law, mm. and those things, and religion, and culture, and those things need to change, but. You know, we won't get it because people give it to us. We need to fight for it and demand it until everything is back in a balance. And speaking to that, like what, what do you see as some um, big fundamental changes that need to happen in order for that shift to really occur? Well, I think it, it, it's a circle, So, but we need to start somewhere. So I really think we need to, you know, it's a bit like the light bulb. We all need to want to change. And religion needs to be, which won't, <laughs> but it needs to change its fundamental premise um, about sin and that women are the cause of that sin. Uh, that's very convenient for them. And then we need to look at schools where things in an, on an educational level there's respect for everyone. And on a, just on a cultural level, we need to get that no one's better than anybody else, that we're all 
we are all born equal and that there's a there's a beauty in everything and in you know in our sameness and our diversity and uh, you know women i mean there's a great statement from someone which is sort of like you know if i express anything any views other than that of a doormat people call me a feminist something like that but um you know i i just don't get it that it's a bit like when with the same sex marriage equality vote you know people who were queer were voting against it so basically what you're saying is we we don't see that we are equal to everyone else we're not we're not good enough for that i mean it just beggars belief and so for for women to not see that they should have the same human rights as everybody else the same legal rights the same cultural rights and they should not be being murdered at the rate of over one woman a week in Australia just because they're women. And that whole femicide uh, you know, epidemic needs to change. But I just see it at its very core. It's because there's a lack of respect. And that is what I would try to instill into everything. We see, we've just seen it in... in parliament where uh you know sarah hansen young was abused verbally by the senator she took him to court and they found in her favor and that's a great result but that should be happening over and over again and men who murder women for for those you know as intimate partner violence should be punished accordingly not let off with concepts of crime of passion or you know, oh, he was a good bloke. You know, it's just completely outrageous and disgusting, actually. Yeah. So there are lots of things. None of them are rocket science. They're just core basic human values and human rights that everyone should have. And respect for women, for girls, should begin at its, you know, from the minute people are born. And even when women are pregnant, you know, there's there's this time where people, a lot of people, people will behave kindlier to women who are pregnant. And then as soon as they become single mothers or solo mothers, then, you know, they're, they're punished. And I don't understand how a society can demonize and punish women who are raising the next generation of human beings it just does not make any sense to me yeah it doesn't even make any sense to me that they're they're single you know i think we're lucky in these smaller communities where people feel a lot lot more supported and i know a lot of my single mother friends you know really rely on on those aunties and uncles who may not be of blood to really help raise that child because we need to realize that it's a big job and it actually affects everybody in some way, you know? Yeah. So in your lifetime, you know, there's been a few different, I guess, like waves of feminism. And um, recently, I guess for me, the big one has been in the last couple of years, that idea of like the feminine rising or the uprising of the, of the feminine. How do you perceive that in your life do you feel that it's 
that it's real? Do you feel that, it, that we are actually having breakthroughs as women in our society? Um, or do you, do you feel like sometimes it's, you know, just kind of a perpetuation of stuff that has come before us? I think it's a continuum. I think, you know, a lot of women and men see the situation to be, at its very least, unfair, but to be wrong, to be completely wrong. And those people have always fought publicly and privately and at kitchen tables and at workplaces. They've always spoken up and not uh, tolerated those views in their company. And so I think it's a continuum, but I think what you've got waged against that is uh, capitalism and marketing, the great manipulating tool of capitalism, which is selling women based in their own, you know, undermined place in our culture. They're selling them an incredible amount of products that women are buying in order to try to be more beautiful, to be more appealing, to be more feminine, to be more of a woman. And, you know, that supply of things is endless, it seems, because now it's gone from being adorning ourselves on the outside to pumping things into our bodies, to uh, sticking things on our bodies. And, um, you know, all in the, you know, in the hope that to beautify ourselves. But uh, really, you know, what would happen if, if, if marketing took a, a name on men and made them be, you know, so subject to all those things? But women are very easy to manipulate and, and marketing companies and capitalism and the patriarchy has, are exploiting that in every way they can. So I do think there's, it's a continual fight that people have fought forever and will continue to fight until something comes into balance. Just like all, um, a lot of minority groups or disadvantaged groups or indigenous peoples of the world are fighting against a system that doesn't appreciate who they are and what they bring to the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just raising the voices and educating ourselves first and foremost on what we can change in our lives and how we can not support those systems that don't support us is, you know, the way that I like to lead anyway. Yeah. But um, I think everybody should has a choice. You know, every time you hear something, unless your life is at risk, then, you know, speak up against it. I've spent my life disrupting conversations, turning to people. And, you know, it's like anything. The more you practice something, the better at it you get. So the more you practice swallowing those words or silence, you're going to get better at it. Whereas if you practice speaking up, delivering an opinion, trying to correct someone or just fucking them right off, you're going to get better at that. And in the end, that will feed you with a sense of who you are, what's important to you, especially as a woman, but also if you're a man or anywhere in between. 
you know, you can't have any respect for yourself if you don't have respect for everyone. Definitely. And I'm pretty sure that Martin Luther King said in, in the end, we'll remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. And I feel like I, I really resonate with that quote in terms of really trying to be a strong activist and just speaking my mind at every every point that doesn't feel like it settles with me in a state of peace, you know, mm. any kind of unease. I'm willing to roar down, roar down at anyone, but I'm a loud woman, so. Um, Good. Dennis, You're making have, up for all, all, all those who aren't. Yeah, yeah, I got a lot to say. Um, so I have one more question for you. Um, yeah, I also just wanted to thank you for something we had a chat a while ago and you imparted this little gem of wisdom, which you often do when we speak, which was that um, you don't believe in hope, but you believe in trust. And I've kind of kept that with me since we had that chat uh, a while ago. Mm -hmm. And it's really helped to inform and lead a lot of my decisions in my life. So for that, I just wanted to thank you. And I wanted to ask you, what, what do you believe to be the biggest truth that you have discovered in, in this lifetime? I don't know if I can answer that. <laughs> I can't. There's so many incredible, wonderful things in the world and in my life that I've learnt and seen and um, I can't think of one. I mean, you can look at all the terrible things and the injustice and the cruelty that's happening in the world. And I have to trust that, you know, at the moment we're in a, a speck of time on a much bigger continuum. And... So I probably feel that even though humanity may destroy itself and we may or may not take uh, the animals and the creatures of the world with us, but I probably trust that the planet will survive and it will recreate itself. It will, you know, just like it's done through all the ages that uh, historians and geologists are telling us that we the planet has been through. So probably I trust that uh, even though humans may not continue, that the planet will, and then life will create recreate itself again further down the track sometime. Seems like a good truth. Yeah, that's probably what I trust. Um, thank you, Zenith. I just wanted to say, um, yeah, just as a community member to one community member, thank you so much. I respect you and um, your teachings and your words and I'm so thankful to share this community with you and have a friendship with you. So thanks for being part of the podcast. Yeah. And how can people You're find welcome. out more about you? They can, if they want to, well, they can Google it. And, uh, but the Natural Death Care Centre has a website and what I 
it's a small charity and I work through that charity because that, you know, that holds an integrity that's very important for me. And everything that we offer is on there and we come at invitation if people want to have something in their area and there's enough people to support that, then we will come. Because now at this stage of my life, I'm really in the role of the elder. And part of that role is to, you know, disseminate life's learnings to anyone who wants to listen and to benefit from that so that they can, you know, learn and incorporate that into their own learning uh, so they don't have to find out everything from scratch. I mean, I know that I'm very grateful to all the, you know, incredible embodied teachers that I've listened to over my life with to their wisdom and their uh, conclusions, their, their stories that they're telling. And so, you know, it's an incredible place to be, to have lived a long time, to being living a full personal life, but also an incredible professional community life. And in order to be able to disseminate that back so that when I die, that body of knowledge doesn't die with me, that it will, it will continue on and improve itself with everyone that takes it into their lives. And it gathers momentum all the time, just like I'm the benefit of others. I'm giving mine to others to benefit them. Mm. So beautiful. Thanks, Anne. And yeah. I hope you have You're a beautiful welcome. day. Thanks. Lovely. And you know, good on you for standing up, for being a younger and and seeing the need for those things and for you know following lineage, following tradition and culture that is useful and beneficial and true and offering that to people that you are touching because you you can never know the impact of what you do but if you don't do it nothing will happen that's probably pretty pretty true